Good morning, Grace. This morning's reading is John chapter 9. Jesus heals a blind man. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees, the man who had been formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as far as this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, 
And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who may become and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you see, we see that your guilt remains. Good morning. It's an honor to be here this morning to bring God's word. Chapter 9 in John's Gospel has long been one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and it's my prayer that it is an encouragement to you and a timely message for any in our midst that have not already acknowledged the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you attend your word with your spirit, and that it convicts us of sin and unrighteousness, and it shows us the hope of the gospel. And so I pray this morning as we attend to your word that you would transform us, that your spirit would make us new, that we would seek to follow you, that we would have eyes of faith, that we would walk in obedience. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The main thing I believe this text this morning teaches us is that all men are born in unbelief, spiritually blind, and apart from the healing, restorative work of Jesus, none could see. We would remain blind. It is this fact that should lead us to worship the triune God of heaven. For God in his mercy sent Jesus to offer his life as a ransom. And it is the Holy Spirit that today opens our eyes and gives us faith and a new heart. Our passage this morning is almost halfway through the Gospel of John. The book begins much like Genesis. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The themes of light and dark, day and night, flesh and spirit, feature prominently throughout the book. In the first chapter, we're told that Jesus is the true light, which enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. In chapter 3, Jesus taught, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He went on to say, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Here we see the true nature of the kingdom of God, that it is a spiritual kingdom of people reborn of water and the spirit. It is the work of the spirit, for rebirth is the work of the spirit, not of ourselves. In chapter 7, Jesus proclaims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Those that are in the light, born of the spirit, are to bear witness that Jesus is the Christ 
we see John the Baptist presented as bearing witness that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And the Apostle John uh, acknowledges this as his purpose toward the end of the book. These themes are worked out in chapter 9 in opening the eyes of the blind and the testimony of the man born blind. This brings us to chapter 9, where we were focused our time this morning. Jesus is in Jerusalem, where he encountered a man blind from birth. We're familiar with several characters in the Bible that were blind. Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. Isaac's physical blindness is also a spiritual blindness, for he has chosen the wrong son, preferring Esau's game over God's declaration that he had chosen Jacob as the the covenant heir. In 1 Samuel, we read of Eli the priest, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. This description of Eli is closely connected with the fact that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So again, Eli's physical blindness is connected with his spiritual blindness. For Eli also had a problem with his sons. His sons were treating the offering of the Lord with contempt and laying with the women serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. But Eli did not see and only gave his sons a mild rebuke without exercising judgment, which is always connected with seeing in the Bible. From the very beginning, we see God exercising judgment after seeing. In Genesis 1, we see that God saw that the light was good. At the end of each day of creation, God concluded his work by seeing his work and declaring his judgment that it was good. Even in the fall of men, we see the connection between vision and judgment. In this case, judgment apart from the law of God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. Vision is a necessary precondition to exercise judgment. The Bible stresses this by requiring two or three witnesses in all criminal matters or in bringing a charge against an elder. The Old Testament law protected the blind. In Deuteronomy 27, we read, Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. In Leviticus 19, we're told, You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. But the law also threatens blindness as a form of judgment. Deuteronomy 28 reads, The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind gropes in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. God commanded Isaiah to tell the people of Judah, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. With this theology of blindness in the Old Testament, perhaps we can understand the question the disciples asked of Jesus. They understood the connection between blindness and sin, at least they thought they did, They must not have considered some other texts concerning blindness, however. 
For God promises many times in the prophets to open the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 29, 18. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 42, 6-7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from their prison, those who sit in darkness. And finally, Isaiah 42, 16. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. There are more such verses, but I think you see the point. God is in the business of opening the eyes of the blind, physical and spiritual. One final thought on blindness in the Bible. Isaac, Jacob, and Eli all lost their sight as they aged. None of them were born blind. So what is significant about the man born blind in our passage? This difference is highlighted in the text itself. The two words born blind appear four times in the chapter, along with the phrase blind from birth. John is emphasizing this fact for us, and we ought not to dismiss the significance of it. We'll return to this question later. Now that we understand the context of the passage, at least a little better, let's turn to John 9 and look at the healing itself. We find that the disciples observed the man blind from birth and questioned Jesus about who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. This is what we call a false dilemma. This means that the very question itself excludes any other options. In the minds of the disciples, there could be only two explanations for why one could be born blind. The disciples hadn't considered any other causes, but not only that, they hadn't considered that the light of the world was walking in their midst. He had promised, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That was just in the previous chapter in John 8. Jesus answers their question by offering a third explanation. It was not this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He even reminded them, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We don't know how old this man was that was born blind at the time, but he was old enough to be, quote, of age, as his parents explained in verse 21. This meant he was old enough to, be, to testify in his own behalf. In other words, he was a grown man. He was not a child. He had been blind the entirety of his life, that, as Jesus had said, that the works of God might be displayed in him. We should pause here and consider. Have you considered your affliction, your suffering, your condition, that it would be for such a purpose? Not just any purpose, but the noblest purpose there is, that the works of God be displayed in you. I suggest we all consider such a thought. Some of us are suffering now. Some of us will suffer in the future. Were you to know of this, of your own situation, would it change the way you would bear your burden? Would it change your perspective? Would it help you to persevere in faith, 
knowing that you are displaying the works of God to the world. We're accustomed to people coming to Jesus for healing, calling out to him, touching him, appealing to him, clamoring to him. This happens throughout the Gospels, but that's not what happens here. The text does nothing to indicate the blind man even knew that Jesus was nearby. The urgency in the healing belongs entirely to Jesus. It is Jesus that says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus did the work of the Father who had sent him, and Christ's followers do the work of Jesus today. So as Jesus did acts of mercy, we too should be doing acts of mercy. As we have said many times, the Bible is God's word. It is verbally inspired, without error, and the complete revelation of God's will for salvation. God doesn't waste words, and the specific steps in the order in which Jesus performed them are important in regards to the healing. We ought to attend to this order. First, notice that Jesus brought forth something from his mouth. In this case, it was saliva, which he spit into the ground. The moisture from the saliva produced mud, which Jesus anointed on the man's eyes. Jesus then commanded the man to go wash in a specific pool, Siloam, which John is careful to translate as sent, S-E-N-T. Jesus sent the man to wash in the pool of scent. Perhaps you're reminded of Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Here in John... Nine, Jesus offers saliva from his mouth rather than breath, putting that moisture into the ground, producing mud, and putting it on the eyes of the man born blind. In both instances, it is that which comes out of the mouth of God that is offered. In the first instance, it is life-giving. In the second, the saliva is restorative. This is a second creative act offered by the word of God, by whom all things were made. For in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus came to usher in a new creation, for the first had fallen into darkness. To complete the healing, Jesus sends the man to the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent, as John tells us. Commentators on the passage note it was likely given the name due to the fact that the pool was not made by a spring, but water was sent to it, uh, likely via an aqueduct or perhaps um, uh, gallons, jugs of water. But in any case, Jesus sends him there, the name reinforcing the fact that the man had been sent. His command was to obey and to go. The man born blind shows no reluctance. He goes and is healed and returns seeing. Now that the man is healed, we find the community in an uproar and an ecclesiastical trial about to ensue. One group was in utter disbelief, saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Another group agreed. It is he. Another said no, but he is like him. The man whose name we never learn kept saying, I am the man. But the neighbors are very slow to understand. They inquire, then how are your eyes opened? The man then bears witness, testifying about what Jesus had done. He recounts exactly what happened. 
The crowd asked the man, where is he? The Pharisees are going to ask a similar question themselves in verse 29. The crowd is not content with the man's testimony, and they bring him before the Pharisees. As we'll see by the end of the chapter, this is in fact an ad hoc or informal court. The Pharisees are going to call witnesses, listen to testimony, and execute judgment. Just as we might be considering why the healing of a man born blind would require a court of law, John adds an important detail. He writes, Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. The Sabbath day being, of course, the day of rest. People were not to be working. Some of you may already remember the controversy that ensued whenever Jesus healed on the Sabbath, for he did it many times. In John 5, for example, Jesus healed a lame man at the pool called Bethesda. This was also on the Sabbath. John comments on this healing, saying, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus himself stated, My father is working until now, and I am working. He's clearly stating that he is doing the work of his father, who is still working. Jesus was not dissuaded from healing the first time on the Sabbath, nor was he dissuaded again the second time in John 9. He did the healing without any reluctance. There's an important lesson for us all here, that what is right is always right, and the concerns of the unrighteous cannot dictate to us what and when we are to faithfully follow the works of our Heavenly Father. The Pharisees had elevated the law above the law, the love of neighbor. But as Jesus teaches, you cannot serve two masters. What is ultimate? What is of utmost importance? Is it the law as understood by men, or is it the will of the Almighty? Jesus knew that to love his neighbor would be to obey God, while obeying the man-made rules established by the Pharisees would be to hate his neighbor. May we have the courage to do so ourselves. The Pharisees in chapter 9 take up the investigation concerning how he had received his sight. Their first witness is the man himself that had been born blind, who simply testifies about the mud on his eyes and his washing. The Pharisees, however, are quick in judgment, declaring this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Notice the same false dilemma that the disciples were guilty of offering when questioning why the man was born blind. The Pharisees considered no other facts beyond their personal interpretation of the law. But many in the crowd were not so quickly satisfied. For the healing itself was a sign of some significance. For they asked, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? As John observes, there was a division among them. Without Jesus, without Jesus being there, the man becomes a kind of scapegoat, receiving the wrath of the Pharisees and the accusatory questions. What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? They seem to want to entrap him since they're not able to put Jesus on the witness stand themselves. The man answers, he is a prophet. This was a relatively safe answer, dodge the messianic question, which we're going to find out is going to be troublesome. They turned their wrath from him for the moment, preferring to disbelieve the entire account. John recounts that the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. Notice how the man is now the man who had received his sight, no longer the man who had been born blind. We're never told the man's name, and I believe this is an intentional device that John uses to typify the man's healing. 
What is important about him is the condition of his eyes, not his name. It's where his eyes were. Were they blind or were they opened? The man's parents do affirm that this man is their son who was born blind. But as John notes, they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So the man's parents respond in fear, lest they say anything that might result in their being put out of the synagogue. It is difficult for us to truly understand what it meant to be put out of the synagogue, as they had feared. America is a diverse nation with the freedom of religion and true diversity of belief. The synagogue was the center of community life, around which everyone in the community was an integral part. To be apart from the synagogue was to be an outcast from the community, distrusted, despised, rejected, and even without hope of salvation. For being a part of the covenant people was everything. Being a part that is away from it was complete loss. There is little in our own culture to which we may compare. So this threat from the Pharisees was no small thing. But consider the alternative. Jesus had said much that they needed to consider while facing their interrogation by the Pharisees. Consider a few things. In John 5, 25 through 27, Jesus says, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. John 5.36 For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John 6.47 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Finally, Luke 9.26 For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. I could go on and on, of course, for Jesus said much. But this much is clear. He claimed messianic authority for himself, claimed to be the Son of God. So the man's parents had to choose whom they would fear. Would they fear the earthly authority of the Pharisees who could overthrow their way of life? Or would they fear Jesus? who could give or take eternal life. Put in their shoes, we might think we would choose rightly. But are we truly willing to cast aside the earthly comfort we have for eternal life? One of our greatest temptations is to live by sight and not by faith. In a moment like this, it is all too easy to not consider the spiritual realities and the eternal reward of faithfulness. May we be a people that live by faith and not sight, choosing Jesus over temporary comforts and the applause of men. So the parents of the man feared the Jews and answered poorly. Rather than affirming the faithful witness of their son, they testify, how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. They direct their questioners back at their son, saying, ask him, he is of age. Rather than acting faithfully, they show their son how to be, uh, rather than acting faithfully, showing their son how to be faithful to their covenant Lord. They show him how they ought to fear the, that he ought to fear the Jews, rather than confess Jesus to be the Christ. 
So I ask you parents, who do you teach your children to fear? Now the Pharisees call the man who had been blind, born blind to testify before them again. They command him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. At first we might be inclined to say, yes, give glory to God. But their next sentence betrays their hearts. They do not want to give glory to God, at least not Yahweh, the God of the covenant they claim to worship. By rejecting Jesus, calling him a sinner, they have shown they will not have Yahweh. For by rejecting Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, they have rejected the Father who sent his Son. To give glory to God as they charge the man to do would be idolatry. It would be worshiping the God of the Pharisees' imaginings, not the God of the covenant. It is the triune God of heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit we are to worship, not a Unitarian God without a son. But the man who had received his sight has been forever changed by Jesus. His eyes have been opened, and he can do nothing else but testify on his behalf. It is clear at this point that he doesn't truly know who his healer is, at least not to be the Son of God. But he's not satisfied with the Pharisees' claims about who Jesus is. He responds to the Pharisees, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The Pharisees are now exasperated because he is not blindly following them, but stubbornly persisting and acknowledging the unique power of his healer. They press him now even more antagonistically, that is to say, questioning him, not as questioning him as an enemy, rather than impartially as would be required in a court of law. They ask, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? It shouldn't surprise us the man actually responds in like kind, like manner. He says, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Pharisees are not accustomed to be treated this way, and they reviled him. To revile someone is to verbally abuse them. You can hear that in their words. You can almost hear the spit and venom coming out of their mouths. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Their appeal to the authority of Moses is a hollow one, for the previous eight chapters testify to the continuity between Moses and Jesus. John 1.17 reads, For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And in John 5 again, verses 45 to 47, Jesus tells the Pharisees, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In John 7, he accuses the Pharisees of not keeping the law that Moses gave them. Yet the Pharisees continue to hold on to the law of Moses rather than receiving the grace and truth offered by Jesus. We might reasonably wonder why they would hold to the, so firmly to the law of Moses yet reject Jesus. This is a fair question one will return to. For now, we should simply observe that though they say they do not know where Jesus comes from, the neighbors raised a similar question in verse 12, you might remember. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is physically absent for most of the chapter? Where he is and where he came from are central questions in this trial. Of course, these answers have all been given throughout the book. And I just read that Jesus is spoken of in the law of Moses. 
But the Pharisees are not interested in what has been spoken of Jesus, either in the Old Testament or by himself. The Pharisees seem blinded to the truth, unable to properly judge the evidence offered by three witnesses. As we've read, the Pharisees are not able to speak peacefully and respectfully to the man. Instead, they revile him. The man, too, is emboldened in his testimony. His words drip with sarcasm and derision. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Sometimes drop a joke about mic drop moments. I suppose this would qualify as that sort of rebuke. What could the Pharisees say in response? The facts are laid bare, and it is plain that Jesus, at the very least, is a prophet from God, and not a sinner as the Pharisees contend. As the martyr Stephen will later testify to the Pharisees in the book of Acts, he says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? This is a David and Goliath type moment, isn't it? A man born blind is healed miraculously by the very Son of God and is afforded the opportunity to testify concerning his healing before the religious leaders of his day. But rather than finding genuine interest in the Messianic healing, he finds Pharisees do not want to hear it. He finds that they have abandoned the God of the covenant and hate those that would testify to the Messiahship of Christ. And not only that, but he has made plain their hypocrisy in the sight of all. The Pharisees who are clearly hardened in their sin and unwilling to submit themselves to the work of God again revile the man. They answer him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Cast him out of what? Remember back back in verse 23, he says, the threat was to be cast out of the synagogue. The man has been cut off from the religious and communal center of his culture. He has lost everything he had, which at the time was relatively little. Remember, he was a blind beggar. But at least the law of his people made provision for him. But now, what did he have left? The story's not over yet, is it? God never leaves his children, lost and abandoned. God offers his son in the gospel, and our passage offers a glimpse of the good news that Jesus offers freely to all. Jesus finally reappears on the scene in the last few verses of the chapter. He had heard that they had cast the man out and found the man again. The healer that had disappeared and over whom so many words had been spoken and over whom uh, and much wondering about where he was and where he had come, back, come from is back. Let it never be said that God abandons his own. Jesus seeks and finds his own. He protects his sheep. So naturally, he returns to the man. His question may seem an odd one from our perspective. He asks, do you believe in the Son of Man? We don't have time to say much concerning the Son of Man, for much could be said. But let's at least recognize that it is a messianic title, emphasizing Jesus' heavenly origin, though born of a woman. In John 1.51, Jesus speaks of angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We're to understand that Jesus is the connection between heaven and earth. In John 3.13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In the next verse, Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up 
that is, unto the cross. In John 5.27, God gave Jesus authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. In John 6.27, Jesus is the one with the power to give eternal life. Again, more could be said. These are some of the key passages that we need to keep in our mind. So back to Jesus' question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man still doesn't quite know who he is talking to, but his response shows genuine curiosity, not pharisaical rejection. The man responds with a question of his own. And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Notice the respect he offers Jesus. He calls him sir. After mocking the unbelieving Pharisees, he treats his healer with respect and authority. Jesus now speaks more clearly. You have seen him. It is he who is speaking with you. Notice Jesus says he has seen him. The man now sees Jesus because Jesus opened the man's eyes. Do you remember earlier that judgment is connected with sight? God saw that the light was good. The man only sees because his eyes have been opened. Having his eyes opened, he is free to exercise right judgment. No one else in this chapter has had their eyes opened, and consequently, no one, is, no one else is able to see Jesus. Jesus adds the clause about who is speaking to you to confirm that it is not just someone the man has seen, but the very one he has seen and speaking with now. The man whose eyes have been opened, whose eyes now see Jesus, testifies, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. All the questions concerning who Jesus is and where he came from are now resolved. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Son of Man. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He is the opener of eyes and the judge of all men. What else could the man do but profess his belief and worship? But again, notice he is the only one in the chapter offering worship. This fact is confirmed then in the next few sentences of the chapter. Not only that, but Jesus explains the matter of the healing in highly symbolic terms. He says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Let me say that again. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do see, I'm sorry, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. One commentator on this passage passage observes, this incident has been recorded primarily because it is an acted parable of faith and unbelief, and therefore of judgment. So what are we to understand of this acted parable of faith and unbelief? Jesus came to heal those that are spiritually blind, and to blind in unbelief those that can see. This is a precise summary of the entire chapter. The man born blind is healed by Jesus so that he may see Jesus. He is no longer the man born blind, but the man who had received his sight. The community and the Pharisees, of course, could see, but Jesus had come to blind them. Some of the Pharisees near heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. I said earlier that we would return to two questions. The first, why the emphasis on the man having been born blind? And the second, why did the Pharisees hold so firmly to the law of Moses yet reject Jesus? One of the first things that we must understand is that all are born blind. 
The man born blind suffered from real physical blindness. But the same man, the entire community, and the Pharisees all suffered from spiritual blindness. None could truly see Jesus, and only the sight of the one man was restored. And it resulted in faith and salvation. The man born blind became a new man through the recreative act of Jesus, spitting in dirt, anointing the the man's eyes with mud, and the washing of water. This one man's experience is the universal experience of all that are saved. Jesus offers his body, not only the breath of his mouth, the spit from his mouth, but his very word made flesh. He opens the eyes of the spiritually blind and washes us clean with the waters of baptism. Those that thought they could see stand condemned by their own words for having said, we see, they still rejected Jesus. The Pharisees held to the law of Moses and rejected Jesus because they could not see, despite their belief to the contrary. Therefore, they stood condemned. John quotes Isaiah in chapter 12, 37 to 40. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. This comment by John in chapter 12 helps helps explain the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts. This is the principle of which Jesus spoke in Matthew 13, 12. He said, For the, to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The very people that had been entrusted with the law of Moses, the prophets, the covenant promises of God, rejected Jesus. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. While setting the context of this passage, we took a brief look at the theology of blindness in the Old Testament. The rest of the New Testament also has much to say about sight and blindness, and in the same vein as what is taught in John 9. You may recall that Paul was blinded on the Damascus Road, and his sight was miraculously restored, and he was then baptized. While preaching to Agrippa in Acts 26, Paul says that Jesus appeared to him, saying that he had been appointed as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are, being, who are sanctified by faith in me. And in Ephesians 1, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
Those of us that have had our eyes opened, the eyes of our hearts opened, know the hope to which we are called. If you have not had the eyes of your, your heart opened, call upon the name of the Lord and ask that he call you out of darkness and into his light. May today be the day of your salvation. But know that rebirth is costly. Jesus does not promise an easy life, but an eternal life. Jesus had to suffer, had to die, had to lie in the grave. Yes, of course, he triumphed in his resurrection, but the suffering and death were very real. The man who had received his sight, too, would suffer again. He suffered as a blind man, but he would suffer again. He was cast out of the synagogue and the only community he had known. The text doesn't tell us this, but it seems likely that even his parents would disown him for a while. This was an extraordinary cost for this man. Yet the man would inherit eternal life. He had had an encounter with the Son of God and was redeemed out of his sin. The many promises this man would inherit are throughout the Gospel of John. I'm going to list a few. Followers of Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 Disciples would receive a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 4.14 His disciples would receive the resurrection of life rather than the resurrection of judgment. John 5.29 They would be raised up on the last day. John 6.44 they would be loved by their heavenly Father, John fifteen twenty one. They would receive the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, John sixteen seven. There are other such promises in the book, but I thought it was interesting that most of the promises were for eternal life. In the other Gospels, there seem to be some earthly promises made by Jesus. John seems to be emphasizing, though, the promise for eternal life over earthly blessings. This is a good reminder for us. There are many earthly blessings that we receive, but our hope is in the eternal God who promises eternal life to his own, those that believe in his son. Whatever earthly promises God offers to us are good and we are to be thankful, but we are to look in faith to an everlasting hope, not an earthly one. Our hope is in the resurrection to eternal life with our heavenly father. Like the man who had received his sight, we too must be ready to pay the cost of discipleship. He lost everything familiar to him, everything he had been holding on to, his community, his way of life, and perhaps even his family. But as Paul writes in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What about us? We live in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Jesus Christ. The world around us has been celebrating so-called Pride Month. CNN explains Pride Month is when the world's LGBT communities come together and celebrate the freedom to be themselves. God's word is very clear that left to be ourselves, we will pursue sin and death. The LGBT movement is just one of those manifestations of that sinful desire. As Christians, we find ourselves scorned by the world for standing against worldly philosophies that celebrate human autonomy, sexual deviancy, and racial animosity. The gospel has something altogether different to offer than the freedom to be ourselves. Freedom only comes in the gospel, 
In John 8, Jesus teaches, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus only offers true freedom. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Mankind has been born into slavery ever since Adam and Eve chose the freedom to be themselves when Satan told them, you will be like God. Adam and Eve chose sin rather than following God's way. We have all been born spiritually blind ever since. It is only in the mercy of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to profess, I believe, and to worship him. The world hates this message as much now as it did when Jesus first spoke it. Christian, are you ready to stand for Christ? Are you ready to be cast out of society, to live on the margins? We don't know what the future holds, but we know that the world hates Jesus and his disciples. All men are born in unbelief, spiritually blind, and apart from the healing, restorative work of Jesus. Without, apart from that, we, would, we too would remain blind. Apart from the work of God, none could see, and none could turn to him in belief, and, final, and find reconciliation with God. It is this fact that should lead us to worship the triune God of heaven. For God in his mercy sent Jesus as a ransom for sinners, and it is the Holy Spirit today that opens our eyes and gives faith and a new heart. May we live by faith, not by sight. May we hold firm to the Son of Man who has opened our eyes and offered the promise of eternal life. Amen. Amen.